You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome back Scott Revlin, a board-certified behavior analyst and assistant director over ABS Kids, Ventura. Over the past 20 years, Scott has been heavily involved in autism advocacy and parent training. In today's episode, we'll talk about what to do while on a wait list. Wait lists for autism diagnoses currently act as a universal barrier to accessing care and affect both urban and rural families. I'm excited to talk about this topic and come up with some solutions with Scott today. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate you coming on because I think that this is like we touched on being such a universally kind of accepted barrier to what's happening with care and and delaying access to care for so many families. I think that before we even touch on the topics, I'd like for you just to give me your kind of state of the nation on this is what is the big barrier to access to care and how are we right now feeling that pain? Thanks, Jeff. I think the the takeaway from this discussion today is simply that we need to get creative, uh, that this problem is here to stay, at least for the short and medium term. Um, I have some some numbers for you. I, I work out in uh, in California, so I'm going to I'm going to lay some California numbers on you. Um, and this is all just back of the envelope, you know, uh, rounding up and down as, as we go through the math. Uh, but we have about 420,000 births in California every year. Um, even with our most conservative estimate of how many kids are going to be diagnosed with ASD, uh, it's about 9,000 plus per year uh, and growing. I mean, that's these are our 2020 numbers. Um, you know, in, in our line of work, a, a typical BCBA, a typical board certified behavior analyst supervisor supervises about 15 cases. That's typically a full caseload. Um, so that means we need to be adding about 600 BCBAs per year just to cover the newly diagnosed cases in California. And then if you, if you step down from that and talk about how many behavior technicians are going to be involved, it's probably five or 10 times that number. Uh, so we have a real workforce problem here. Um, and this is compounded by the fact that we are seeing uh, an increase in the number of kids who are diagnosed uh, later in life, you know, past age three, past age four. Um, and those kids are are typically in school all day. And so the only way that for those kids to access care is to receive treatment in the afternoons. Um, and so if we have this gigantic bubble of 9,000 new kids per year who are looking for treatment only from the hours of three to seven in the evening, um, we have a, a big, big workforce problem. Yeah, I mean, just dissecting everything that you put down there, I mean, it, it, it can tell that, you know, the comprehensive nature of trying to be able to solve this, it's not going to be done today. It's not going to be done tomorrow. This is years of trying to figure out how to balance the workforce but think of efficiencies in care at the same time. What does that do to a family and especially a a child where we know early intensive intervention is so important and yet they wait for six to nine months before they can access care or wait a year plus in some areas before they can even access care? What does that do for for their prognosis? And does that set them back to the point where, gosh, I don't even know how that would feel as a family. 
Right. And I think, I think again, as a parent of a, of a neurotypical child, um, I wouldn't want to wait six months for tutoring or for guitar lessons or for swim lessons. Um, and obviously, uh, what we're talking about in terms of, of the kids we work with is, is much more, uh, much more impactful than, than learning how to play guitar. I, I think that the name of the game is just getting creative um, and spending that six months doing something productive, starting to build in some routines, um, accessing sort of non-traditional forms of, of ABA that, that could be helpful. Um, there are some things out there that, that parents could be doing to bridge the gap between their, their assessment or their intake and the start of treatment. Yeah, and I mean, I think the saying is better is better. Um, you might not be able to access everything you need at that point, but at least you have somebody to lean on. You have some guidance on where to go. So let's let's start navigating this path. And I really think as we're talking through it, you're you're looking at two buckets. You're looking at a bucket of young children that oftentimes don't have any services and don't have school options, don't have anything that's occurring for them. And then you have a bucket that are children and young adults that are school-aged, have some supports and some continuity that's available to them. Um, maybe, first of all, you could break down to me what that might look like in a, in a treatment plan. What's the difference oftentimes in a treatment plan for a younger child and an older child before we get into the weightless management? Sure. So for, for our younger kids, um, the programs tend to be more comprehensive. You know, we are managing maladaptive behavior and, and building up replacement, replacement behaviors, but we're also doing a lot of skill building, uh, teaching kids to talk for the first time, teaching kids to, you know, play with toys appropriately for the very first time. Um, oftentimes for that, that second bucket that you're talking about, those older kids, um, you know, they've been in school, they've been in preschool and elementary school. Um, and you know, the, the, the areas of concern that, that often remain are more in that behavior management area. And there actually are some, some pretty good resources sources out there for families to help manage maladaptive behavior, even from a, a parent directed standpoint, from a, from a parent education standpoint. Yeah. So, and, and let's talk about those. Let's talk about the behavior management part while somebody's on a wait list right now. So a family comes in and I'm just going to draw this out and they've been told, you know, we you can't get a diagnosis for six months. So that means that they're going to be dealing with challenging behaviors, in which case they're going to have to have some intervention or else the behaviors have the chance of, of becoming worse and more challenging over time. So in a parent training or parent education component, how would somebody utilize weightless types of resources and what would those be for a family like that? Sure. Well, I would encourage all families to, to really lean on the, the agency they're on the waitlist with. Um, even if they're on a, a wait list and technically waiting for services, I mean, that's, that's your provider. If you, if you had a sick child and went to your pediatrician and the pediatrician couldn't squeeze you in for three weeks, the pediatrician would still be giving you some guidance. Take this medicine, lots of rest and fluids or whatever that pediatrician would recommend. Um, you know, I, I think most ABA providers should be able to provide that type of, of guidance. Here, here is a curriculum that you might use. Here are um, some ways of, of collecting some data that might be helpful for us uh, once we do start to hit the ground running and make up for some lost time. 
and they're you know separate from from the the ABA provider. Most of the older kids who are coming to us um, have had an IEP previously, and in most IEPs now there is a behavior support plan. You know the the IEP team will list out all the behaviors of concern, a corresponding intervention plan for each, um, and you know with with a, a little tweaking here and there, parents could use in some cases, that same plan at home. Yeah, so I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying, for at least the behavior component, there are readily available resources. And if not, leaning on that provider who put you on a wait list to say, is there a curriculum I can be supported by? Are there basic intervention techniques that you can educate me with so I can put them in place to be able to create a better environment? Um, and I, I think one of those that that's being used is the is the Ruby network, which really hits on those core pieces. And that's a curriculum, but it's helping to really focus on the behaviors. It's helping to be able to focus on accessing different environments and that parent-child relationship. Are there other core areas that you think should be built into a resource base for parents who are on the wait list or that should be readily available by the agency to say, listen, here are some resources, maybe even bracketed out by domains, Take a look, and if you have questions, call us, but look at these resources to see if any of these interventions can support you before we get a tailored plan then. Definitely. Uh, the, the Ruby network stuff is, is great. You know, something that, that we often recommend to parents is to be aware of situations or experiences in, in which the family has withdrawn from. Um, are, you, are you not taking your child to Target because you're worried about, about the behaviors that may pop up at Target? Are you um, not scheduling playdates because you're, you're worried about how to run those on your own? You know, this, this process of self-sequestering that, that some families do often lead, leave these blind spots for us. You know, we, we don't know that we should be pushing into Target. We don't know that we should be having playdates because we're not hearing that those are an issue because those experiences aren't occurring. Um, so I would encourage parents to be taking data not only on, on what they're doing, but also what they're not doing. You know, I'm I'm not giving my kid oatmeal because I know exactly what's going to happen if I present this oatmeal. And that will help us get a very well-rounded picture of, of the child um, and make things easier once we do start. Is that almost kind of doing a little bit of a modified functional behavior assessment so that you can kind of give some real data back to your BCBA before they even start? Is just telling them, sure. hey, when I do this, this is what I'm seeing. And, you know, these are the consequences we're running into as a family. But you're actually guiding a lot of that decision making by really portraying that series of events. Correct. And we are always happy to have any data that we can gather, um, even if it's just tally marks on a post-it note. Um, you know, how many times did he you know, throw the toy inappropriately? Even that level of, of data can help us tailor the intervention once we get once we get started. Um, and it doesn't need to be overwhelming. It doesn't need to be a parent lugging around a, a binder all day reporting everything. But, you know, just just the process of, of taking the data may help the parents uh, put things into perspective. Oh, we are really struggling in the afternoons versus the morning. So let's, let me, even though I'm on this wait list, let me go back to the provider and see if there's something specifically we can do structure-wise in the afternoon to help. 
or you know he is really struggling, but only when his sister is home. Um, how can we how can we create opportunities for them to play appropriately? You know, in in the next six months while we wait. And all of those things sounds like they they could be extreme barriers for families to be able to function the way that they want to, and it's going to affect everybody, including everyone's mental health as far as feeling successful. So if you were in that situation and you felt like ah, I'm avoiding going into this or every time I run into these particular events, there's always conflict or there's uh, an emotional outburst. What would you say are like the three or four biggest techniques that a parent should just learn to utilize, even if they're not using it 100 percent correct during that waitlist time period? Like, is it extinction? Is it, I mean, what are the things that you're thinking are the most important things just to have in your tool belt as a family while you're on a wait list? Uh, you know, I, I think to, to take a, a little bit of a step back, I, even with families who aren't on the wait list that we, we start up right away, we are asking families to do some very, very difficult things that run counter to almost every parenting instinct you have. I mean, we're going to ask you to do things like not comfort your kid immediately when your kid is in distress you know your child wants a cookie and is yelling for the cookie and we want him to say cookie or approximate cookie before you give him the cookie. And this this can be very, very tough for parents to do, especially parents who may already be feeling um, a little discombobulated with their parenting experience and not knowing how to interact in, in a, you know, correct way with their child or a way that's going to lead to, you know, positive changes down the line. So my, my first recommendation is simply for the family to be working on psychological health and getting themselves to a place where they're going to be able to do all the tough things that we are asking families to do. And, you know, self-care looks a little different for everybody, but, you know, figuring out how to get to your starting place is, is a really good thing. So things like seeking out local resources that are going to, uh, for support groups um, here in, in Ventura County, what, what the support group providers have been noticing is that um, there are so many kids being diagnosed and so many kids who were diagnosed previously that it actually makes sense to have two different groups now. There are actually groups for newly diagnosed parents and groups for uh, parents who have had a kid diagnosed in the past. Uh, local autism societies um, normally have uh, their finger on the pulse of, of you know, supports out there for parents. We don't want families to feel like they're swinging in the wind for, for six months. And you know, helping, helping families connect with resources that are going to get them ready for that first day of treatment are really important. Yeah, and I mean, if, if all the providers were able to kind of give those those information sheets or be able to connect the family to the network is that we'd all be in wonderful hands. I mean, this is probably, and not to not to toot your horn, but I'm gonna toot it anyways. So this is probably why you were nominated as volunteer of the year out in Ventura, but it's, it's knowing those resources. As a family, you don't know where to go. The providers have been doing this for years upon years. They've been able to figure out where those resource groups are, how to tailor it to what that family's need is when they're calling in saying, hey, I don't know where to go for this, or I'm struggling with this, or I need a peer, or like you said, some mental health support, is that an organization should be able to guide on referrals to help a family navigate that. And I think that's that's extremely important. So as a family's doing this and they're putting together just some some modified routines in their house and some maybe small behavioral supports, it sounds like a lot, but what are some of the administrative burdens they can take off themselves 
because when you start treatment, whether it's diagnostics or it is uh, ABA, you're going to have a lot of forms to fill out. You're going to have a lot of coordination to do. I mean, your job as a parent just started at that point as far as in the clinical team. So what could they be doing to prepare for that? It's a very good question. And, you know, the the reality is parents, parents assume a lot of roles throughout their, their ABA career. Um, and learning to manage all of these entities and, and insurance companies is an, unfortunately one of those roles that parents need to take on. Uh, so in, in most states, uh, ABA is a covered benefit, meaning you can you can access ABA via your insurance company. Um, but in terms for any any kind of, of issue, uh, your benefits may may vary. Um, you may have you know lots of copays, lots of out of pocket costs. And so the, the first step is really to connect with your, your insurance company and figure out exactly what this, what this benefit looks like. Um, in most cases, I know, I know for, for ABS kids, um, we have a, a really great insurance department that will actually call the insurance company on your behalf, check on those benefits, figure out how much your, your out-of-pocket costs, costs would be, any coinsurance, um, you know, to make sure that you know what you're getting into, you know, that you have an, enough to worry about without there being this, this air of mystery around what your, your out-of-pocket costs may be. Um, then, and this varies sort of state by state, there also may be other entities out there that actually help parents with those out-of-pocket costs. So here in California, we have the, the regional center system. And if you are a, a consumer of the regional center, they can help you get what's known as a, a Medi-Cal waiver. And as someone with a disability in the state of California, you are eligible for Medi-Cal services. And that will cover all out-of-pocket costs associated with, with treatment. Um, but you need to know to do that, right? You, you, you need to know that you know, your second call should be to the regional center to start this rather lengthy process. Um, and that's where your local autism society comes in. That's where your, your Facebook groups come in. And my, my, my biggest piece of advice there is, is make sure you find your people. The first group you join, those may not be your people. If it feels weird, if, if they're talking about things that don't concern you, move on. You, you'll find another group and you'll, you'll find your people. Sometimes this is an age thing. Sometimes this is a location thing. But I, I guarantee you that your people are out there. There is a lot to be able to be do during that process. And I mean, it can be overwhelming, which oftentimes requires innovation. It requires organizations to think outside the box and to be able to empower families, even when they're not seeing them a lot face to face. It's So it sounds like as an organization and as an industry at large, there's a lot of innovation that we could be looking at. There are things that we could be doing to be able to lessen the burden on families. So I'm going to actually ask you this question, and then I'm going to weigh in as well, because I like this back and forth game on this, because I'd love to make an innovative wait list solution. But what what are the things that you think the industry needs to do to be able to think outside the box to solve some of the issues within the wait list problem? I, I would put these into two categories. Um, one would be resources we can provide families that that families can almost self-administer, self-pace their, their way through a, a parent training curricula, or maybe it's it's check-ins with with a provider, you know, not not on our normal schedule of, of once a week, once every other week, um, but maybe once a month. And and frankly, I mean, I, I would hope providers out there are checking in with families just to make sure they're still interested in services, that they haven't gone elsewhere, found some other provider. So th there should be a, a routine check-in 
with with families. Um, the other category that, that I like to talk about is, is really on, on my shoulders, which is we need to make sure that we're treating employees well enough that they are sticking around and working for us for a long time. Um, we also need to create conditions where we are growing our, our supervisor base by creating educational opportunities for our employees. You know, I want my BTs to turn in, my behavioral technicians to turn into supervisors. Um, and I think if, if you look at, across agencies, that there are some that are, are really doing it right and really making sure that, that good people stick around. And that's going to help us uh, address this, this staffing issue, which is really at the root of, of all of these wait lists um, to begin with. Yeah, I mean, those are, those are great insights, but I think that as you already stated, is that there's organizations that can tackle that and, and start doing it well right now. And it shows that you've already been innovating on it because you're starting to see a little bit of that proof in the pudding. The, um, I guess when I look at this is that I look at the fact that we have advancements in, in technology. We have more telehealth options than we used to ever have, which expands the provider base. Um, one of the issues with wait lists, and I think that you've probably felt this, and I know everywhere else has, is that there's a there's an inherent mismatch of when people are available and how many providers right. you need at those times. And if you can utilize telemedicine effectively, you can start to reduce some of those barriers. That would help those kids that are most affected by wait lists, which are the which are the school aged children, just because they're available during a set amount of time usually. And right. without that, it's it's you don't have enough employees that just work that time period and are looking for part time employment. So you have to have all those morning patients to be able to balance it out or else you lose great employees. And that's not what you want. Um, the other thing is, is that with school based care and center based care is that by being able to expand the location of service, I think that you can start to provide more adequate and appropriate levels of care across the entire population, which then means that you got more opportunity to be able to hire employees. You have more chance to be able to give people the hours they need to be able to make a living which means that you're holding them longer and that you're able to empower them to provide care for these older kids as well because their flexibility in the schedule exists. The other thing that I'd be looking at is, is we have created wonderful libraries and there are ways for families to access things like, um, I guess for ABS kids, is that they use a parent portal and uh, they're able to communicate with their providers. They're able to access videos. They're able to access research. They're able to understand technique just through some videos and things like that, but they have that option. And maybe that's an expanse into the waitlist program that will empower so many families to be able to have that Band-Aid until they can get the full care. But there is a lot out there. And I think that if we take little bites and start solving them, hopefully that this problem starts to, starts to lessen. But as you said, there's more and more diagnostics that are occurring on a regular basis. So it is, it's an ongoing problem that's gonna take everybody coming together to solve. So what would you say are your kind of parting thoughts for a family who's already could be discouraged because they're on a wait list or are ready for care and just can't get in yet? What would you be telling them if you had the chance to sit down with them and kind of help them through understanding the process? It would be to control what you can control. You know, it's, you're not, you're not really sure what's going to happen at Target that next day, but you can certainly control a phone call to an insurance company and find out what your benefits are. 
Um, so let's let's take all the the guesswork out of the things we can take the guesswork out of. Um, connect with those local resources. Connect with your with your provider, the the people you're on the wait list with. See if they have uh, resources available to you. Any structure is good structure. I would start creating routines around your house, meal routines, bedtime routines. You know, use that those routines to help you zero in on those parts of the day where you are consistently experiencing um, some some pushback, some some maladaptive behavior, so that you can provide your ABA provider with some information about the parts of the day that you know your child really really needs that support. I would continue to work with your your local school district, get a copy of your IEP, see what the behavior support plan is in there, um, see if it can be tweaked uh, to be used at, at, at home if they're seeing the similar types of behavior across both settings. And then finally, I, I would cut yourself some slack. There is many, many hours in a day, and it's very hard to be a super parent all day long. Start with a half an hour. Start with an hour where you are going to be very behaviorally sound. You're going to follow through. You're going to do all those types of things that that you know you know you're supposed to do, um, and and build from there. It's this is I, there's a lot of diet analogies here. People tend to fall off diets because they they see these things as all or nothing, right? I'm either going to be eating perfectly or I'm going to be eating very very unperfectly, um, and it this is not an all or nothing proposition. Any any little bit of 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 work that you do is going to pay off. So start with something manageable. Don't beat yourself up if it's not 24 hours a day, um, and and build from there. Yeah, and I think that that is probably the best advice you can give. As you know, a head start is a head start. So if you right. use that wait list time just to give yourself even a little bit of an advantage, that's going to help for the long term care of your child. It's not going to replace the treatment, but it's going to give you a bridge to be able to get things moving quicker. And I think that that probably is one of the bigger takeaways is how can we make it so that families are empowered during enough during that time period to be able to continue their treatment and be in a good place to start. Um, Scott, I appreciate you coming on. And and I, I think that uh, undoubtedly Ventura is in great hands, but uh, I think that by sharing some of those insights is that we're going to push everybody to start thinking outside the box, finding ways to be able to solve for some of the weightless problems, both operationally, but also on the on the treatment side. What can we be providing? So thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. No problem. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.